We were shooting 50 cows within what looked like 50 centimetres of their bridge. You know, they were actually shooting across the bow. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anyone to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody left. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. were very, very sleepy. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain was Proud of the pain. crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Welcome to the second season of Life on the Line. If you're new to the show, we're the podcast that track down Australian military servicemen and servicewomen and record their stories. For our first episode of Season 2, Angus Horden spoke with Dave Stafford Finney. Dave was recently medically discharged from the Royal Australian Navy. I'm Angus Horden, and I'm joined in the studio today by Dave Stafford Finney. Dave, thanks for coming on the podcast. No dramas, thank you. Dave, tell us about your early childhood, please. Uh, there's not a lot of significant stuff in my early childhood. I guess I, I was an average kid, went to school in Adelaide until I was 14. My father was in the RAF up in Malaysia. So I went up there for a holiday for a couple of weeks. And after a couple of weeks, I was invited to stay. So I finished off my high school there. And while I was up there, actually, I met a, a few sailors coming through. A lot of the expats hung around in the same areas. So as the sailors were coming through, I heard a lot of stories and a, and a few of the stories were pretty exciting and fun. And so that sort of influenced a little bit of my decision to join the Navy in the first place. And then once I came back home, I applied, went back to school in year 11 um, and halfway through, I was accepted into the Navy and started my career there. So besides your dad's service in Malaya, was there any other military history in the family? So my dad was in the Air Force for 24 years and his father was in the Navy. I think he did over 20 years and he actually served in Malaya as well. And apart from that, I had a great uncle that was in World War One, but I don't know a lot about his service. So was there anything else that inspired you to join the forces other than these great tales that you were hearing up in Malaya? I think just that and, and my father's influence, my father being in the Defence Force and enjoying the life and sort of encouraged me, not, not pushing, but, but guiding me in that direction. So he's in the Air Force, but you end up in the Navy. Yeah, I think, well, his father was in the Navy and I think he always, you know, probably heard some stories as well and was pretty, pretty excited about it all and thought it was a great life. And I think he was keen to go that way at one point, but ended up in the Air Force. So it's just the way it worked out. It's funny, my dad always said that he joined the Navy because he's always assured of a bunk at night time and a meal at dinner. Yeah. Was um, any part of your training especially memorable? Um, not really. So I, I was a marine technician. The training for that was over a year in, in Cerberus down in Victoria. So it wasn't an exciting place and it was sort of a, a long period in a base that wasn't a lot of fun. A, apart from the survival at sea training, that was that was pretty short in the long scheme of overall training. But jumping into the life rafts in the freezing water and getting gassed and going into the, simula the fire simulator and flood simulator, that was all pretty exciting and fun. Um, you'd go home and you'd discuss it for a couple of hours afterwards and every, everyone had fun in there. But that's about it. I, uh, I think my real career started getting exciting once I left the training establishments. 
So what was your first ship? Uh, my first ship was HMS Shepparton. It was a, um, a survey boat, like a small white one. And it was, it was strange because it, they said it was a different Navy and everyone was cruisy and we set up inflatable swimming pools sometimes. And it was really to start there was unusual. And that was my starting point and, and kind of my reference for the Navy, which was way out of whack. <laughs> it's not what the Navy was like. However, we did get tasked early on in my career. I think it was that I'd been on the boat for probably about six months and we got tasked to go up to Suai Bay in East Timor and do a, um, a beach survey so the landing craft could get in there. So when we went in, we were unarmed on a white boat, sort of not really aware of what was happening. We did no training. So we were under armed guard on the beach we ended up doing a lot of setting up the tide survey and a few things like that. We had Nepalese, Fijian and New Zealand soldiers protecting us. And after a while, we sort of, you know, you got a bit bored and you went for a look around. And on the beaches there, there was some few houses that were destroyed. Um, they had a lot of barbed wire in them, bullet holes, a bit of blood. And so we started talking to the kids on the beach who, you know, for two or three days, we'd just been mucking around with. Um, and then they started telling us stories about what had happened there. And it was pretty surreal knowing that you know, these kids that are having a laugh in front of you have just had either witnessed or lost family members or, or seen some terrible, terrible things. And I remember one day, I don't know what happened, but the Fijians grabbed their rifles and just ran into the bush. Um, we heard a few gunshots and we were just left on the beach. And it was just one of those moments where, you know, we were like, what, what's happening? So we called in the boat and asked if there was a boat coming to get us because we didn't know how, we just felt naked, I guess, on the beach with no weapons. And then eventually, uh, I, I can't remember if the boat came or, or the Fijians come back and they come back and they were laughing and <laughs> we were saying, what's happening? And they just going, oh, some kid stole a bike. You know, <laughs> so it was, it was nothing but, you know, we were, we were just so well aware of our surroundings that everyone was kind of a little bit on edge anyway. But, but that posting as a whole, like, I, I mean, I went to Darwin a couple of times, Thursday Island, the... Uh, that, that boat was a, a pretty fun boat and a pretty easygoing boat, you know. We, uh, we kept watches on the bridge as engineers. That's pretty uncommon. And then just went down and did our rounds once an hour and did a lot of surveys and, you know, in pretty beautiful and amazing locations. Yes, I understand the, the hydrographic department yep. that you were in sort of ran a, a different branch of the Navy. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I've heard it said, but, but equally, I mean, it's important work. Um, oh, because you're going to places where the Navy needs to go and you need to tell them all the information they need, whether they're going to go into those waters and how they're going to use it. So, But again, you're not typically under fire and you're typically not running around with a, with a whole bunch of warships. So it can be your own war and your own posting, as you found. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and there's a, a real feeling of... Um... You know, when you see the warships and you see the soldiers, you see that they can protect themselves if they need to. And there was a, a real feeling of being naked in, in those situations on those boats. We heard stories of one of the other boats, I think it was HMAS Paloma, got boarded by pirates in Papua New Guinea, you know, and it's just not where you want to be. Like, you would like to have the big guns. and like... So I'm imagining uh, in the armoury, you've probably got a few rifles and pistols and things, but... The... I think we had two rifles and okay. two pistols. That was it for the armament for the whole boat. And what's our complement on board? It's... Oh, about 26, I think. Okay. So it's not a lot of firepower yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Can we talk about Bougainville? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the lead up to me going to Bougainville, it was just an opera relief. The electrician on HMAS Tarakan was going to be away. So I put my hand up and said I'd, I'd jump on for the deployment. It was supposed to be three months in Bougainville. In the time leading up to that, I had an accident on a jet ski and I broke, I shattered my ankle. And one of my mates, instead of, you know, like 
helping out. He he went up to the boat the next day and he said, "Oh, Dave's done. I'll, I'll go for him." You know, like, good, good buddy. Yeah, good mate. So he got the trip, and um, about seven or eight weeks later, I was I was, had the cast off. I was walking around and he came off his motorbike. <laughs> and I was like, you beauty. I, um, I went up to the boat and I said, oh, he's, he's come off his motorbike, but uh, I'm good to go. And they're like, all right, done. So, so we were fighting each other for, for a few of the roles at the time. And I ended up going. So we, we sailed, I think it was November 2001. There was a few rules there. The United Nations had declared that there was to be no alcohol or weapons. We'd been doing weapon handovers and there was obviously alcohol on the ship, but that wasn't to be taken into the waters. So it was a whole time frame. When when we got there, it was a weird feeling. We were on an army base that was surrounded by jungle, that was surrounded by people that we weren't really aware of who was who. Um, there was a real feeling of all the different armies were sort of swinging, shifting sides, and who was in what army, no one really knew. Or that was on the, the ground level anyway. And so while we were there, we started going to local villages, handing out peace pamphlets. Um, we helicoptered into villages all over the island and talked about the peace process and the united nations representatives with us would pay off local security guards and do everything we could in our power to ensure that everyone knew what was happening because the communication was the, the key issue for especially some of those villages that that only hear rumors from here and there and they're all on edge because they've been fighting for so long so it was really interesting talking to a lot of the the soldiers the kids and just the people that live there you know i remember one soldier saying to me that um when they hear the enemy dying they're calling for their mothers and when they're dying they're calling for their mothers you know so they un had a, a basic understanding that everyone was the same but they were still fighting each other and i'm not sure if it was before we got to bougainville or we were there one day we lowered the bow door on Tarakan and we were jumping off the waist or the, the bridge wings into the water and swimming around and jumping back up and we were probably a kilometre off land. Within about half an hour, there was 30 kids on the bow door. They just swam out to the boat and jumped up and so we were hanging out with them and we were like trying to swim down to the bottom of the anchor to grab sand and they were coming up with sand and we couldn't get down there, you know, they were just, they must swim between the islands all the time and um one of the kids he, i reckon he was about 10 years old he had a, a scar on his stomach and the kids were talking about it and and they said that he'd been shot and so we asked him about it and he was explaining that the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes so they'd send the kids in first and so he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach had a pretty big exit wound on his back as well but it was a really surreal moment because he was the cool kid and you could see he had a bit of street cred with all the other kids and it was I think in any human situation, people normalise whatever happens. And, and that's exactly what I saw there with, with those kids at the time. But the rest of the time in Bougainville, apart from going to village and village, um, we'd find all these remote areas when we were taking the boat around. You know, if we couldn't get in by helicopter, we'd take the boats and vehicles. And But we'd stop and go swimming everywhere. And I remember swimming in these mangroves and we'd come across all these Japanese mini-subs from World War II. And so we were just taking photos and, you know, like sitting in these submarines that had been left over. And there was a few tanks and guns on the ground that were still left over from World War II. So it was, it was a real mix of like almost like going through a museum. But then some of the wreckage was from that year or two weeks earlier, like the hospital and the Woolworths and everything had just been destroyed completely with destroyed vehicles. And then I think it was around, I think it might've been Christmas Eve. We obviously had no weapons, but the base got surrounded and held up. And so they put rifles on the, the, the front gate and the guys in there and they held the, so the first line of defense in my experience has always been local security and then, then as. 
Um, and so they held the local security at gunpoint while they came on and they just took fuel and a few other things. But that night we were told that the UN headquarters and the Red Cross headquarters had also been attacked. So it really changed the whole feel of the whole time we were there. Not so much that what had happened, but how vulnerable we were and how vulnerable everybody else knew we were. And then that made a difference, them knowing our weaknesses. Eventually, I think I, um, my great grandmother passed away while I was there. And it just happened to be that I wasn't required anymore and I got offered a, a flight home on a Herc. So I, I, I took it and, and I was the only bloke on the Herc. So when, when we went to the airfield, there was, you know, the guys in the trucks sort of said, oh, in this area, we just drive through, no stopping, you know, like, so it was a bit of a, a, a strange truck, truck ride out there. And when we got out there, the Hercs had landed, we jumped on, they took all the, the gear off. And um, when we took off, I was the only bloke on the plane. So they said, do you want to come up to the cockpit? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, so I got a cockpit ride back to Townsville. It was it was pretty awesome, you know. Some of the stuff that I've done, I, I think you would pay to do. There's so many exciting, you know, like test rides and test flights in helicopters or, you know, jumping on a Herc. These are such great things that I think the, the general population would pay to do. So it was, it was a pretty exciting way to come home. But it was also when we landed in Townsville, there was just that huge shift in, in emotion. Like it, it was then that I, I think you allowed every conversation you had, every person you met to, to sort of become like your shields came down. It was a bit of a relief to be home because Bougainville wasn't, wasn't the, uh, the nicest place to be. And after a, a few months there, I was I was happy to be on Australian soil again. Dave, I think it's important also for our listeners to appreciate what Bougainville was because Bougainville was a German possession. We took it off them in the First World War and then we gave them their independence in 75. And then this civil war erupted between 88 and 98 for a decade where over 15,000 people were killed. So you were posted there with the Australian peacekeepers, but you're in a war zone with all these warding feuds supposedly putting their rifles down and you're not even able to defend yourself. So it was a challenging time for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the challenge was the, the information we had, almost like we had too much information. Like we knew exactly what was going on around us and what had happened. My father actually served in Bougainville in the mid-90s as well. He went over there with the Air Force and they, they got pulled out pretty pretty early because of some threats made against the Australians and I remember my father saying we waited to hear back from Canberra to see if we were leaving or not and when we finally left they all said yep best decision the Australian government's ever made you know so it's a real vulnerable feeling I think and and I don't think I was the only one to feel like that. Can you share with us that night when you were interrogated continuously by Iranian warships? <laughs> yeah, that was, I, I can't remember if it was the first or second time I went to the Middle East, but um, I went in 2005 and again in 2007. And I, I think it might've been 2007, but what happens is when the bridge staff talk to the captain, we in the engine room can, can overhear the radio conversations. And so basically they, every time there's an interrogation, you, you have to respond. I think the same as uh, asking why someone's in their airspace. So every time that they asked a question, what were our intentions as, as a ship, they'd tell the captain, they'd respond, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing. But it, it felt like in the engine room, what we were hearing was they were asking every five minutes. And then once we gave a response, then the question came over again, where are you going, what are you doing? And then they responded again. And then the question came again. So it wasn't so much a physical threat, but it felt like they were very much flexing their muscle in the area and, and sort of making sure that we knew that they were in control of that situation. Again, I can only say from what I heard in the engine room, I don't 
understand the politics behind all of it 100%, but you could sort of tell that when we're in certain areas, there's games that get played and it's pretty common between navies. And when you're hearing that or feeling that, you, you, you get a bit on edge, you know. And which ship were you on board then? That was on Tobruk. So Tobruk is this utility ship. It's not a great warship. No, it's a, we refer to it as a fat ship. So it's, it's essentially a cargo ship or a target. And we're talking about Iranian warships, which are these fast torpedo boats, which had challenged and, and were a threat if they decided to have a go at us. Oh, so absolutely. You're not in the latest destroyer or frigate, which is armed up to be able to easily repel these sort of attacks. No, no, not at all. We, um, the best way to describe this ship is I remember when we were, I think it was 2008, we were in Hawaii and some Americans came up and they said, if we gave you an hour's notice before we had attacked you, what would you do? And uh, one of the guys just said, we'd raft up to you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> we're not going to run. We're not going to fight. We'll just tie ourselves to your ship. You know, <laughs> Yeah, so usually when we're in places like that, we're, we had protection or we were on our own and just doing our job, you know. So even pirates were a threat. We'd light up the ensign. We'd have spotlights everywhere. We'd have the guns out, just making sure we looked as threatening as possible because we didn't... Well, as, as crew, we didn't feel like we were a threat to, to anyone. And I think Tobruk wasn't the latest modern ship of its type at that <laughs> time either. So, in fact, I recall I think she'd been in Fiji and she had to return to Australia for repairs and she had to basically go astern the entire return trip home. Yeah, it was nicknamed to Broken for a while. So it was... I think it was commissioned in 1980 and I joined in 2004 and I was on there for eight years and, and we had multiple problems and multiple rumours, but there was something that we, we really took pride in, you know, getting that ship from one side of the planet to the other. And we did it time and time again, uh, but there, there was always something wrong and we'd if you couldn't get the parts, we'd put it together the best we could and we'd get it to the next port. It was like an old tractor in a way, like once you knew it, you could work with it. And, and it was all the engineers that I know that were on there, pretty proud of their time on there and they've and they've, they've got pretty good feelings about that ship. Like, it was a good ship, but you're right, we had some problems <laughs> and occasionally... And similarly, it was a time when the Navy wasn't as well-resourced as it had been and is now, and we didn't have lots of flexible utility ships, which which Tobruk was. So there weren't lots of other ships that could take on task what you were doing, so you were needed. Yeah, and I think it's one of the most actively deployed ships in, in the Navy's history at the moment because it's had such a unique capability. The only ship I've ever been on that size that could beach itself and we could drop everything off on the beach or we could unload with landing craft or we could deliver a, a pretty good amphibious force wherever we were in the world. So it was, you know, it was a pretty capable ship. Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty capable. And look, you've had other encounters, as you were mentioning, with regard to the Iraqis. For example, there was that Russian destroyer and that Indonesian submarine. <laughs> so the Russian destroyer was actually last RIMPAC. So I was on HMAS Canberra and we were just patrolling outside of Hawaii. And the Russians weren't involved in RIMPAC, but they certainly had a, had Tag a along. ship there, you know, and it just sat there for, you know, we watched it. It watched us um, and that happened for a few hours and then it went and sat next to one of the American ships and, you know, like all of this stuff is not uncommon and it's not, I don't feel like it's a huge threat and the more you know about it, you can go on about, like, you still go and get your breakfast in the morning, you, you're not worried about it. I can't even remember where we were going, where the Indonesian submarine surfaced quite near us and then disappeared. We were starting asking questions because, you know, even the communicators on board can't tell the engineers what's going on. They've got their secret clearances that aren't to be discussed with everyone 
but it was just a real feeling of like we started asking around did anyone know what that was and everyone's like no or who it was and quite often you'd be in the engine room and you'd hear sonar pinging the hull um so you knew you'd been followed or tra- tracked something's or, up yeah um and then again it's not uncommon it was just something that we we did Whilst you're spending all this time abroad, do you have someone at home waiting for you? I was married. I think it was 2005. I I met my ex-wife on the ship. She was a chef. So we used to, you know, if there was long hours through the night, we'd ring up at two or three in the morning and ask for the engineers to be fed and, you know, and and she'd be up there telling us to F off. And so we um, started talking through work and then just obviously, I think it was 2005. Oh, sorry. We might've met in 2004, but 2005, we were um, up to the Middle East again. Oh no, 2007, we went up to the Middle East. And I think this is, (laughs) this is a bit strange, I know, but I think we had about 150 crew and when we came home, we had 35 couples. So it was... It was, it was the love ship, huh? Yeah, well, um, apparently that was that was another ship at the time had the reputation. But yeah, it, was, it wasn't uncommon for people to, especially on long deployments where there's not much communication back home. You, everyone talks to each other. And I mean, everyone's young and fit and doing human. a job and human. That's right. So yeah, we came back and eventually got married and we went our separate ways eventually. So, but... There was a few years there where, you know, either I had a, a pregnant wife or, or a wife and child or a wife at home, and they were probably some of my hardest deployments. So 2008, I went to Hawaii, and what was really hard is when you're in Hawaii and you've got time off, go to Waikiki Beach or you go for a surf or you go and do these things, well, you know that she's at home with a baby and all this fun it looks like you're having while you're on deployment, like she's thinking she's doing all the work while you're away having fun, and, you know, there's... You don't want to be away, but when you do get that time off, you you want to relax. So it's a real catch-22, um, and that happened for a few years. I remember, um, I think it was 2009, we met up with some refugees in the Arafura Sea, and one of the guys said, I, hadn't seen, I haven't seen my wife for two months. And my immediate thought was, I haven't seen mine for three, you know? It's, it's as soon as he said it, I was like, so? Um, but it is a very different situation. It was on your mind all the time. And so there was a few years there where your whole world is at home, but then you're trying to live in this other world when you're deployed. And when they cut off communication or, you know, you've got only emails and then you're up at two in the morning, you can send an email, you know, you're not going to get a response until the next afternoon or something. So it's pretty trying. And one of the things I learned through that time of my life was how to support other people in the same situation. Not that there's a lot you can do, but I found in my later years in the military, letting people know that you've been through the same is sometimes enough and you understand and you know there's nothing they can do is sometimes enough to help them just feel like they're not alone. And look, over the time with all these deployments, you've faced lots of those close odds whilst on duty, been surrounded by riots, been approached by men with machetes. Can you share some of those experiences? I've been approached by groups of men with machetes more times than I can count, I think. Um, And And, and would this be boarding ships as well? No, no. So um, I've never done an an opposed boarding. I've witnessed one on a patrol boat, but even when I was on survey boats, we used to go to these islands in Papua New Guinea and set up a a camp on the island. And the first thing you'd be met with is 30 guys with machetes. And these are pretty big guys. And you'd talk to them and then the women and the children would come down and like the women would try and drag the Navy girls off and like sing with them. And the guys would be trying to share cigarettes. And, you know, it was a real, like some of these islands were just 
everything was made off what was from the island. So the the huts were made out of the trees there. You know, all you'd see is a couple of Australian probably rugby league t-shirts and, and an outboard motor, but everything else was all natural. We got stopped once when I was in Bougainville. Me and a friend were coming back from the village and we got stopped on the road. Again, everyone had machetes and they had a big drum that had acid written on it. They were asking my friend to drink it. So we started saying, you know, no, they're, they're expecting us on the base. We've got to get back. If we're not back, they're, they're going to come looking for us. And eventually, like, they had a discussion and they left us there and then they came back and they were drink, drink, drink. And after about 15 minutes, they sort of let us through and, and we went back to the base. What we think it was was jungle juice, the alcohol that they were making themselves. But the fact that it had acid written in big, big English letters on the side of the drum was, was enough to want to get out of it. And the fact they weren't drinking from the drum. Yeah, that's right. Dave, can you share with us some of those patrol boat boardings, please? Yeah, so I joined patrol boats in uh, the middle of 2003. I was on HMAS Wyala. The first thing I did while I was on there was a, was a workup, which is basically where you train to match the environment that you're about to go into. And I remember when I got on there, because I'd been on landing craft and survey boats before, the training was very different. The training on those boats was more about protecting the ship, whereas this training was more about fighting. Um, so we were, did some attempted boardings on other patrol boats, and when we opened fire across their bow, they, we were shooting 50 cows within what looked like 50 centimetres of their bridge. You know, they were actually shooting across the bow, and it just felt like we... It was a real switch from the Navy career I had to, we were starting to play for real. And when we were doing boardings where they, in the workups, they were pushing us to the point where, where we were shooting. Now I was the electrician on the boat, which usually during boardings, the electrician stayed in the, in the control room and cause you, you could keep an engineering watch and look after the electrical stuff. So when they started doing boardings, um, I remember seeing snatch teams and, you know, that's just the two biggest guys go across with, with a shotgun and a, and a couple of pistols and they, they physically stop the boat and then the boarding team follows up straight away. Um, one of the things I, I think um, really got to me, and I, I think it, this got to me in the later years, is when we were boarding, the conditions were, were terrible on these boats and quite often the boats were so far away from land and you couldn't make sense of how they got there or or how these boats weren't sinking. And sometimes we would sink the boats um, just because they were unseaworthy and take the crew back to, to Australia. But nearly every boat that I was a steaming party on or involved in a boarding or even on boat party that we went over to, every boat had a had a young boy. And it was something that I don't think I can... Like, we all sort of knew about it. There was no actual witnessing of anything happening, but the, the, there was a, a, a strange sexual nature about it. And it's never... This is one of the things that's never really left me. And the the fight that we sort of had in internally or you know you what what do you do you everyone knows it's going on you can't do anything about it like if you witness anything you can protect them but if you're not witnessing anything you just there's nothing you can do about it it was one of the things that i don't think i'll ever let go of and i think later on in my career i started to struggle with a few things and and what i think is it wasn't the fact that i'd been through or seen anything worse i just had a unique set of circumstances where my moral compass was knocked at the right times uh, consecutively, year after year after year, in, in such a way that I think my value or my ability to feel safe was slowly damaging. And I remember in 2009, we, um, I'm not sure what the political policy was at the time, but 
we couldn't actually leave some of the areas because there was just more people coming in and more people coming in and more people coming in. So we'd act as a mothership and the patrol boats had grabbed them and then we were getting some boats that were so full of people, their next stop would have been Antarctica. They were going, they would have completely missed Australia. And you're getting these people on board that have obviously been a few days without food and water. They can't physically stand up. They're so close to death or, or dying or, you know, so weak that they can't help themselves anymore. And then the ship started to fill up. So we've got a few hundred people. Um, and we were doing, as I was at one point in charge of a boarding party, which was effectively now just looking after all the people on that boat for weeks at a time. And you're not supposed to get too personal or too close, but when you're trying to manage their showers, they're eating, you know, and then they're, they're fighting each other. And it's, it's hard not to take on, it's hard not to be empathetic. I think if my situation was similar at that time, you know, I could have very easily been in their shoes. And I think by the time I'd completed that deployment, that was the one where I think I came home and I was a little bit different. But I remember, you know, a few times one girl said to me, she, she was tough as nails, this girl was named Sarah. And she said to me a few weeks after this trip, she goes, how, how did that affect you like so much more than me? And it was one of those realizations where I, I think, you know, I'd met the kids that had lost their family on the beaches in Suai Bay. I'd met the kids that had been shot in Bougainville. I'd met so many refugees and I'd been on all these boats. And, and you know, by this point, I'd sort of seen the whole journey. And I don't think any of it is, is helpful, good for a human soul. You know, they, as much as you can be resilient and things are just normal at the time, it eventually eats away at these people. And I don't understand how a lot of them are you know, healthy or living healthy lives now after what they've been through. And also, I mean, this was a time in 2009, a new government had changed to policy and the Navy were actually tasked with having to intercept and bring these people to Australia and care for them a lot more than previously. Yeah, and, right. and therefore your role in the Navy was really being redefined. You're on a patrol boat. What's the normal complement? What, 30-odd? Yeah. Oh, sorry. By the time in 2009, I was on to Brooke, so we acted as a mothership. But on a patrol boat, we're, yeah, with 25. So that change in role... Um, I remember thinking, you know, I, I, I need different training. You know, I've got rifle training, baton training, riot training. But what about humanitarian aid? Humanitarian what about, relief, you yeah. Know, these, these people are in situations that all I've got in my training is, is my gun. <laughs> you know, and it, it doesn't fit. Although, like, the, the role was to make sure they were safe, we were safe. You know, they, you know, if they had have got through one door, there was... The girls were sleeping in their pajamas there, you know. So, like, there was we had a duty of care to make sure that the whole area was safe. And, and, and as you safe. say, their ships were so unseaworthy that if you didn't even intercept that ship, there could have been a chance readily that the ship would sink and not even make it to Australia. Oh, that was that was a real chance all the time. Um, and not just that, if we didn't find them in time, sometimes you know, like, there's some of these boats are so small, with, they're carrying more people than water, and so if they're drifting for a week, it's yeah, it's almost all over. Dave, are there any particular funny or lighter moments that you'd like to share? Well, I've got one. I, I don't know how funny it was at the time. I, well, I'd say it's not funny at all at the time, but when I was on patrol boats, we were an all-male crew, so we are a pretty tight crew, but what happens is the forward heads and showers are right up the front, like in front of the gun, like inside. So if you're in real rough weather, you just don't go in there. It's, it's just too violent. But one morning we were leaving Darwin, so we did specials, we got the boat out, it was all good to go, and then we came out and me and a mate jumped in the showers. And as soon as we got in there, we sort of turned into the swell and, you know, like it, it just took us by surprise. And the first wave threw us both out of the shower and we hit the deckhead. 
And so as the boat was falling, we were up on, on, the, on the ceiling and we, I, I saw this guy's face because we were facing each other and he, he had, the, I reckon, the same look as me, just, ah, <laughs> how do we get out of this one? And as the boat came down, it must have connected with a second wave and it started shooting up. As, so as we're falling, the boat's coming back up. I landed flat on both feet, but I just hit the deck too hard and, um, and I broke my, my leg um, just below the, my knee. And my mate was covered head to toe in soap and he just slid out and he face planted. He broke his cheekbone on the sink. And then, like, the first thing I said is, do you reckon they're going to stop? And we hit another wave and he was in the air and he's just like, I hope so, and he's flying past. And, but what used to happen is that the forward heads, if it got too rough, they'd come off their mounts. And so if you didn't pump them down, you'd end up with a pretty messy situation. So one of the boys was like, oh, I better pump down the heads. And he ran in and as he did... <laughs> I've hit the ground and cadets come flying towards him and he's just gone, ah, and just started dogging down the door. And again, I'm like, do you reckon he's coming back? And my mate's like, I hope so. But what he'd done is he'd gone up to stop the boat. And so when they stopped the boat, like we settled out. Yeah. One of the boys came in and picked me up and carried me down and because obviously still naked and wet and there was blood everywhere at this stage. And he's like, Dave, this is as close as I'm ever getting to you. Well, you know. <laughs> when I got into hospital, there was a, a bloke off another boat that come off the seat and he went down a hatch and he, he did his back. And so we went to a hospital in Darwin. I didn't know him that well, but I knew he was off another patrol boat. And while we were in hospital, we worked out if I lowered my remote control, I could change his TV and he worked out the same as mine. And so every morning I'd take his, oh, he'd take my wheelchair and I'd put all this stuff on the ground because he couldn't get it. And the nurses were just like, do you guys know each other? <laughs> Not well, you know, but it was just good to have another mate in the hospital while we were there. Dave, during your years in the Navy, did you ever lose any mates? Look, I haven't lost any mates. I've had a few sort of drop off to, you know, either injury or, or mental illness or, you know, sort of close off. Now, it's a hard question. I've had a few that have disappeared off, off the face of the planet, so to speak. So they... They really have, it's changed who they were or something's changed who they were. Like, I don't think I've witnessed anything bad or been in any bad situations, but I'd say my career is quite average. But what happens at the end of that is there's a lot of damage done, I think, not just through the military stuff, but through also leaving your family behind and just conflicting ideals. You're trying to be a family man, then you're trying to be a soldier, then you you have a child and then you disappear to the other side of the world for, for six to eight months. And then something will happen in some, like, and I saw this a few times where something happens in people's later careers or later in their career where they'll just be discounted as a professional or as a person or just by someone that they don't know and all of a sudden, you know, their their rank's not worth anything just in that moment and then all of a sudden they're like, well, what are the last 20 years for? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I saw it quite often. But what I found now is I had a few problems with uh, mental health issues and I, I was diagnosed with PTSD and, and spent a few months in hospital last year. And I think what I've noticed now is when I listen to other people speak, I can really see it. Like, And I guess maybe I look the same to other people when I was going through stuff because for years you think you're fine and you hold it all together. And I had one situation where uh, I lost my son when he was very young and I just remember bringing the whole military into my house. I remember trying to evaluate assets, um, what I had, what I could use. And uh, at the time, I, it was my wife, and I started yelling at her, like, you need to get here and do this. And and later, on reflection, I feel like I brought the military into my house. Um, and so there's there's a lot of things that you train up for and then you can be, become something. But on reflection later, like, I don't know if that's the right thing or the wrong thing, and it's sort of hard to to weigh up that truth within yourself. 
but yeah, I, I think I've been pretty lucky. I've, I've got a great support network. I've got a lot of good mates and I, I think I've got the sort of mates that'll be there forever and I'll be there for them forever. You know, so the support network that I've got out of my time in the military is, is never going away. So what made you leave the military? So I was medically discharged with PTSD. I know when a lot of people get out, everyone just says, oh, you'll be back in six months. No one said that to me. <laughs> but um, I think at the start, I was, I was, I was quite upset with it. Um, but after a few months and, and actually thinking about it, and I think by sustaining or trying to deploy again, like when I deployed in um, 2016, I felt like I was so on edge quite often that I would be tired all the time or... Uh, there was a situation one night we were coming home from dinner and there was a guy in the water and he was drowning and it, it was pretty late at night it would have been about midnight and i didn't know if he was drunk he'd fallen or, or what and um so i called over a security guard and they just said if you get get in that water it's a ten thousand dollar fine <laughs> so me and another guy just looked at each other and um he was a chief so one rank ahead of me and eventually like we had a bit of a discussion this guy kept going under and so i, I said i've got to get in there and and the chief goes yeah just get in there we'll sort out the rest later and that was enough so i stripped down and jumped in and, and i got him to a pontoon and as i pulled him up his head was just gushing with blood so was, I didn't was he an aussie or no no but i i got his name he he said his name was Chad and then I asked him another question and he was gone so I didn't know if he'd drowned or taken in water or, or, or what and eventually the fireys come over and they, as they started moving the pontoon the pontoon drifted underneath the wharf and started smashing up against the bottom of the wharf and I was like come on guys and so I eventually got it back out and then we lift I put a neck brace on him we lifted him out and met him a couple of weeks later and he was a local bloke and um he recited a few things he said he had an overwhelming calming feeling and so I think he he must have been on the edge but he said when he when he was in the hospital one of the nurses was like oh you must have a guardian angel and then someone else yelled out no nah, it was just some aussie guy you know so um got to meet this guy he was a great bloke and at the end of the day i i think anyone would have done exactly the same thing but what a few people have been telling me is is i don't know i think after like a long career in the military you're ready for that sort of stuff all the time and it doesn't take much thought or much of a process to to go on get in or help or do anything like that have you had any other sort of close calls at all any you know drug problems or anything else like that i joined the navy in a pretty heavy drinking culture in the early 90s and i think there, there was a cultural shift for me i saw it around 2004 with the introduction of the breathalyzer and you know it, it just felt like being a big drinker won't be tolerated anymore. And then, you know, even social events, it wasn't encouraged and it sort of died off. But I think over the last few years, um, especially when I moved to Canberra in 2012 and I ended up starting to, I became a big brother and I volunteered with children charity, um, like Camp Quality. I was at a point in my life where, you know, I started to become a, you know, a father to, a, to an older daughter. So I was at a point in my life where I, I started giving back and it was just a real rewarding feeling. But in those in those years i felt like i was okay but when i look back on it i think the drinking the depression the ptsd i think that was all there and it really didn't sort of come into play until everything hit me like a ton of bricks probably late 2017 and that was when i really could say to myself finally that there's something wrong um there's something wrong with the way i'm thinking there's something wrong with the things i'm doing eventually uh that that led to a an overdose and i ended up that was when i first went to hospital and got diagnosed and and spent quite a bit of time getting psychological and psychiatric help which i'd sort of never really i'd, I'd resisted it prior but that was the first time where i was like yeah it's 
you know, where am I going from here? What do I, what have I got? And, and sort of trying to rebuild that life. And now I feel like I'm rebuilding a life with a different state of mind because I'm not the same person I was when I was 17. I'm trying to put all that together into what I can be useful for or what I can achieve with the, the level of mental health I've got now. And it's, it, it feels like an open book, to be honest. I, like, I feel like I could do almost anything now. I can go back to uni. I can go, my degree's still active. And so I was studying astrophysics. I started in 2012 and got a, like, a, well, one year in, but um, I did it over a few years. And so all these books are opening and opportunities are opening now. And uh, my relationship's never been better with my, um, with my daughter or my ex-wife. You know, I'm probably a better ex-husband than I was a husband. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's, there's all this opportunity. We'll rebuild everything now. Dave, how do you reflect on your time in the Navy now? It's, it's strange. I feel like I've lost part of myself through it. However, if I really think about it, I would probably do it all again. I had such a good time. I've got so many great mates. And, you know, all the bad moments, they, they sort of add up. And if you sit down and list them, it sounds bad or intense. But there's a lot of hours and hours and hours spent sitting with guys doing nothing and trying to relieve boredom and, you know, years of building friendships and having good times. And quite often it's, it, it just feels like you've got 200 mates and the Navy just says, you know, there's Vietnam guys, behave, here's $5,000. You know, it's, so there's been all these adventures that I'm pretty happy about. And the memories that I'll never ever lose or, you know, I'll always think back fondly of my time in the Navy. Dave, certainly your story is a reflection of a roller coaster. You know, there's been high moments, low moments, but predominantly your moral compass has carried you through. You know, with the people you saved, that guy that you pulled out of the water, and it's an amazing story, and we really appreciate you coming and sharing it with us, and we in particular thank you for your service, doing all those runs on that Trebrook Ferry <laughs> and all those jobs that just keep the wheels of the military going and letting it do what it's doing. So thank you for your service. No, thank you. It's been great talking. If you like the episode, please post about us on your social media to help get Dave's story heard by more people. To see photos of Dave during his time in the Navy, look us up on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLpod. Email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com and visit our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can read up more about Dave's time at sea and life beyond at his blog, davestafford.wordpress.com. If you have a spare moment, please jump onto Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. This helps the secret magic of the iTunes algorithm push us up the charts and to bring these veteran stories to a wider audience. And if you're not already, subscribe in your app of choice, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from, to get all content. Our first bonus episode is out this Friday with Tim Kolzak, the man behind the camera of The Veterans Project. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget... <laughs> <laughs>